All right, if you've listened this far, you know the deal. The book that came out of this podcast is called How the Internet Happened, From Netscape to the iPhone by me, available wherever fine books are sold. Also, the podcast I do these days is called The Tech Meme Ride Home. Search any podcast app for Ride Home, and you should find The Tech Meme Ride Home, which is all the day's tech news every weekday in just 15 minutes. If you like this show, you'll love that one. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset, hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Welcome to the Internet History Podcast. I'm your host, Brian McCullough. This is Chapter 5, Supplemental Episode 2, an interview with Linda McCutcheon. Linda is another Pathfinder veteran. She came up through Time, Inc. on the marketing side, so she was the one responsible for landing the first advertisements that ran on the Pathfinder site. But she also stayed at Time Warner through the entire life cycle of Pathfinder, eventually rising to head the entire Time New Media operation. Linda gives us a brilliant recap of the entire era, from the full-service network efforts through the dot-com days when she successfully brought Time New Media into profitability. One small note, halfway through, we lost our Skype connection, ironically because Linda's Time Warner cable signal went down in her office. So there is a bit of an interruption halfway through, but even allowing for that, it's a great conversation. So without further ado, here is Linda McCutcheon. Linda McCutcheon, thanks for coming on the Internet History Podcast. Thank you, Brian. So um, your your background, you you started out in magazines. You were with... um, Business Week, The Economist, Money, all sorts of places. Um, it's money that led you to uh, Time, Inc., right? Uh, yes. I, I entered the Time, Inc. door through Money Magazine, where I was the marketing director. And about a year and a half into that, I was what was then called the first round draft pick to go to Time, um, which had been... Um, struggling a little bit to go in as marketing director, which I did. So I think I joined Time in 1991, uh, maybe 1992, I'm not quite sure. But certainly by 1993 I was there. And you, what leads you towards the, towards the new media projects that are starting to bubble up around this time? Serendipity is all, I think. Um, again, and I, I will try not to say back in those days over much, but 
we had a weekly senior management meeting on the business side, which was known informally as the steer, steering the ship. Um, and by, by tradition, we had uh, one editor came came to the meeting, attended the meeting, to fill us in on any editorial developments that might be of interest or appropriate for the business side to become engaged in. And it was usually two or three of the same people who were not the managing editor but in the senior editorial ranks. On the week in question, it happened to be Walter Isaacson. And at, when he, when it was his turn to, to speak, he posited as how he had gotten an inquiry for, from a company called America Online, which had 226,000 subscribers and was interested in doing a, t a deal for, with Time Magazine for content. And what they wanted, in addition to other things that were less memorable, was to be able to put up the content of Time Magazine on their service on Sunday night. And this was highly controversial, as in its long history, Time Magazine was routinely went to the printer, it, the printing cycle, if you will, was you sort of closed the book and it went to the printers and it was mailed and in the mail in the in the hands of the post office and it was kind of public Monday morning 70% of timing subscribers got the magazine by Tuesday I think you know and we kept real track of how efficiently we delivered the magazine so to have the magazine up on available even to 226,000 people for a magazine whose rate base was in the millions at that time was mm, worth discussing. And no one on the business side was really that interested in, in taking it on because it would have been, although Walter was, as Walter is one of his great attributes, and he has many, is that he is a universally curious man. And so you, you, I, I understood that he was intrigued by this, and um, yet none of my colleagues on the business side were really sort of taking it seriously. And I was intrigued by it because, frankly, I had been a marketing director at some of the marquee magazines um, for a long time. Time, Inc., Time Magazine, being marketing director of Time Magazine, was a, a wonderful job and, and one that I loved. But I thought if I had to oversee the making of another rate card and media kit, I would kind of shoot myself. So I said I, I would do it. I, would, I was interested. And with that, I... I began to negotiate or discuss this opportunity um, with the folks from AOL, who in those days were uh, some guy named Steve Case, mm -hmm. I 
here was Don, a guy named Don Davis. Some, hmm, what was his name? Oh, yeah, Ted Leonsis, Ted Leonsis yeah. David Colburn. Those are my, and, and David Colburn's later, as we continued our relationship or, or our, are working together um, than some people in David's ranks, but initially certainly with David himself. So uh, let me interrupt you, just a, a quick question. So the proposal is to do on Sunday nights the entire content of a, of a week's issue, or, or would it be? I believe so. Mm -hmm. I am not. Um, it is quite some time ago. It was, it was, you know, we were attacking content with a blunt instrument in those days online. So it wasn't what we would, what, what magazines online look like today. I believe that it was the entire content, and but that wasn't all it was. As we fleshed out the deal and we began to under, you know, to, to really be reciprocal and offering ways to, to get this done, if indeed it got approved by the management of Time Magazine, it was having the editors, um, possibly the editors who did the cover story, online Sunday night for a chat. Um, this was, wow. Um, it was having them, yeah, available for a chat to be able to um, perhaps file some put on online some stories that hadn't made the magazine but were not in any way time you know time sensitive or anything like that just sort of a few tidbits from the cutting room floor um, have the editors perhaps um, comment on the story and the genesis of the story and that was all very exciting and and oh I'm sorry they Sorry. also offered us, uh, of course, AOL accounts for all of the people who were involved, which later came, was quite important in my um, epiphany or conversion into understanding that, that information in the future would be largely distributed digitally rather than through an analog um, channel. Had, so, you, had you had any experience with online services prior to this point? Oh, you know, I, I messed around with Waze. I, I at the time, was um, married to a computer programmer who was not in that field at all, but was certainly aware of it, and he would point it out to me, but not, not in any substantive way. I had, you know, I knew, I actually knew more about the... World Wide Web from being a news junkie and a history junkie and reading about Tim Berners-Lee and all you know all of the people who created and and created this network. So my knowledge of it was, I would say, virtually all theoretical until. I started visiting their offices in Vienna, Virginia, which is where their first offices were. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, I became pretty conversant pretty fast. So um, you end up doing a deal. Was it just with Time, or were there other Time, Inc. properties? 
just with Time, okay. um, Time Magazine. Again, at that time, the magazines were not grouped in any way. There was no sort of news, lifestyle. There, there was none of that. So it was simply Time, and um, and and that was it. And how how pleased would you say Time ended up being with with that partnership? Because it, it only ran for a couple years, right? It only ran for a couple years, but it did involve revenue, um, which pleased them, um, as it would any general manager. Of, sort of like found, found money for stuff you're already doing anyway. Just so. Um, and that, in fact, was the, the most compelling sales pitch to the management when I ultimately went forward and I, I believe that by this time there were some editors who were also um, eager to, uh, to to have this experiment. Phil, Philip Elmer DeWitt was one, um, Dick Duncan was another, um, you know, Philip is, is actively writing and doing great things on the web, um, Walter, of course, and um, so there were, there were a small group of people all on the editorial side plus me, and who who went forward and, and proposed that we do this. And, and yeah, the, the, the unique selling proposition to Time, Inc. at the time was we are going to be paid to provide what we already are doing. So it it's, goes straight to the bottom line. The only thing that was controversial was releasing the news before the magazine because the great fear as it was in the early in those days and it lingered for in my view a startlingly long time was that if if you could get it online you wouldn't subscribe or buy the magazine oh well oh my that would be terrible because we live in, and die by our rate base, the number of people who subscribe for which we sell, against which we sell ads to advertisers, and, and people who buy the, a copy of Time on the newsstand. So, um, but, but at that point, again, everything is, you know, timing is a lot of what goes on. One could easily make the case and I did, that it was 220,000 people. Our rate base at that point might have been 3 million, 3.5 million, something around there. Um, so it was de minimis to the, the printed magazine, yet it would provide supplemental revenue, and we were able to sort of move, move it forward and get the deal done on those, on that, on those terms. So if if what I've read is correct, and, and actually this would make sense logically, at some point the thinking starts to be, well, what do we need this middleman for? And plus, you know, AOL is basically building an audience and a brand off of our content. Why don't we just do it ourselves? Is Is that sort of, is that accurate? Is that how thinking about web experiments came about? Uh, yes. I think that's that's generally true. It very quickly, uh, Jim Brand at AOL 
was mailing the, you know, the ubiquitous discs to sign up for AOL. Um, I actually, shortly after doing the deal, which was in probably closed in late 93, I went on a maternity leave with my second child. In, uh, it was, would have been the summer of 1994. Um, and I came back in September. Oh, I think parenthetically, I began to realize how fundamental this change was because prior to when prior to having an online account and being able to communicate with the editors and other people, when you were away from the office or on maternity leave, you really had no idea what was going on. But it was quite interesting that it, at the at the time we did a an, an issue ad in the Wall Street Journal right under the business index section, and it appeared Monday morning, and it was Reg Brack, who was then president of Time Inc. Incorporated. It was his. It was really his baby. He loved this. You know, he he felt that Monday morning every business person in America opened up the Wall Street Journal and they ran down the business index to see if their company was mentioned, and there would be the image of the cover of Time and a blurb describing the the issue's cover story. Because of its importance corporately, I did that. So while on maternity leave, because we all had email accounts, we were all in contact, I was able to follow the development of the cover story, and I was able to do that from home and oversee the um, the, that very timely issue ad. So these are th these are those AOL email accounts, right? right? Yeah. Because I I could email Philip or Walter and say you know what the cover package was going to look like if news broke late and they threw out sort of the how to live to 100 cover story and went with Israel invades Gaza over the West Bank or something like. Improbable as that, um, I I would be able to uh, pivot and get that done. So I returned in September of 1994 to um, an environment in which they had created largely as a skunk's work. I would I would call it a, a in a low profile manner. A, a, a division called Time Inc. New Media, and Kurt Vibrons was named president mm -hmm. um, while I was gone. And I, I came back in the fall, um, spoke to Walter, who remained keenly interested in this phenomenon, which is how we looked at it then. And in January, I got a call from Walter, and he said, you're coming to work for Time Inc. New Media, and I'm going to be the new president. And we've, we've been funded for the year. So it happened just that quickly. And the uh, you're absolutely right, Brian. The impetus behind it was this sort of growing, really uninformed, trying to see through the dense clouds, but that feeling that there's something here. And if there's something here, we don't want AOL to have it. We'd like to have it because we are Time Inc. Mm -hmm. So were you around for 
when what eventually becomes Pathfinder is is incubating? Oh gosh, yes. Mm-hmm. I was um, indeed. I was at the um, in the office as we all were, mm-hmm. and I was responsible for the first the the four ads. I say that with um, some humor that ran on Pathfinder on that night. Do you, do you night. remember who, who the ads were for? Yeah, I sold them. I should remember. I joined Pathfinder as the vice president of advertising sales. So it was General Motors. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm saying this, but I, I'm probably going to have a senior moment. It was General Motors. It was mm, an insurance company, I believe. Oh, I can I can look it up, but I will I I. But it was I, it was the one I remember most is General Motors because that was a very high profile. It was larger national brands. Absolutely right because it was your all time. national brands. Uh, one might call them international brands. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. You know, I I actually have spoken to a bunch of um, early. Uh, online advertising pioneer people and um you know they described that they had a there was a time period where you know they they have to talk brands into experimenting with with online stuff but i feel like maybe because you're time inc you maybe had an easier time of it well yeah um in my memory and i i can only say that this is how i recall it although it was a a vivid recollection. It was basically Yahoo, the ad director there was a guy named Anil Singh, and Wired, and Pathfinder. So we would go, I I, I vividly recall Walter walking into my office one day and saying, um, why aren't you ever at the staff meetings? Why are you always going to Detroit? And I said, having waited my whole life to use this line of contacts, I said, well, Walter, that's where all the money is. Because Je- Detroit was enjoying its last full flush of worldwide domination in the automotive industry. And that year, I think General Motors had spent something like $90 million in advertising, magazine advertising in all of Time Inc. magazine. So SI, People, all of those. So... We were a known quantity. And so imagine, you know, we're all, there are three people sitting in the waiting room outside Phil Garacia's office. It's me, Anil from Yahoo, and the person from Wired. Mm-hmm. And Phil comes out and, you know, and I, this, this is not happening, but this, is, this would be the analogy, I think. And we all say, Phil, we'd like you to invest some money in a growing new media that will help your uh, advertising reach new audiences in new ways, to way oversimplify it. And he kind of looks, he's an extremely smart guy, and he, Phil Browner is at his side, and he kind of says, hmm. And he looks, at it, he looks us over and he says, you're from Wired? And you're from... Yahoo, <laughs> and 
Linda, I know you. You're the marketing director of Time Magazine from Time Inc. Now, and and then, then in this sort of scenario, he's it's he's in thought mode. The bubble over his head says, "If I'm going to put some R and D money in this, I'm going to go with the people I know, Time Inc." So I get called into his office. And it was it was simply name recognition, and for for there was a brief period of time where we that's how we we got we grew as fast as we did in in the way that we did. And I knew, and I mean, it was nice to hear what this is a great success and all. And I kept saying to people, "You guys don't get it." People are buying ads from us because we're like IBM in the 1960s. Nobody ever gets fired for for choosing IBM. Mm-hmm. But that day will soon be over. Ah, oh, come on. You know what's this Wired thing? What's this Yahoo thing? What's this you know Suck thing? Mm-hmm. You know who's? It was. It, they were the pure plays, who would later come to dominate and own the web were the guys who had the the hardest time getting traction because they had no brand equity or name recognition. So, yeah. So, um, so we had in the, in the very beginning, an easy time of it. Um, so give us a sense of what Pathfinder launches as and, and, and what, you know, the, the goal, what the product was, what, what was the goal of the site and what was it trying to be? On a very high level, Walter um, was extremely clear that our mission was to be essentially an, an R&D aiming to be a real business unit of timing. And his mantra was, let a thousand flowers bloom, which is, I have to say, often forgotten when people regard or, or posit that Pathfinder was a huge failure um, because as, a, as an early employee, I felt like we were doing a, a lot of different things. So when Pathfinder launched, let's start with the name Pathfinder. We had, this is a company who had some of the best known global media brands in its stable, and yet we chose to name our website Pathfinder, famously after a um, James Fenimore Cooper novel that I think Walter had read at a precociously young age. So there was that. Why not call it Time, Inc.? Or I, 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 my running joke to everybody was that we should name it Time, Inkless. Simple. Timing, timing, plus easy. Mm-hmm. Um, no one took me up on it, but that's another story. So there was the name Pathfinder. There was selected content from some magazines, but there was also new content that had nothing to do with any of the magazines. The day the Pathfinder launched, one of our largest 
um, sites or areas or content verticals was something called um, My Virtual Garden. And it was all about gardening. <laughs> and it had nothing to do with anything um, that that was Time Inc. Mm-hmm. We also um, toyed with creating a site for pet owners called Pet Finder. I don't think we ever did that, but that's the way we were thinking. Mm-hmm. So what did the initial version of Pathfinder look like? It was sparse. It was, I think there was an intro that said sort of welcome to um, timings site for the World Wide Web, and then there was the famous Compass logo and Pathfinder, and the ads, the four ads, um, of which I will soon remember the other three, were simple tiles that, of course, had no IAB certification because Mm -hmm. there was no IAB, and um, that led to largely Pathfinder created um, landing pages because our advertisers were not did not have websites to go to, so you have to really it, it's it's hard for people who have grown up in the digital age clicking on things and finding destinations when they click they get somewhere to be selling ads to click on and then having to create the destination because there was no place to go. So that's really where we were. And so I was there. I was I was responsible for the paid advertising in, at the launch of Pathfinder in sometime in 94. I would say late 94. Um, and um, that's how it started. So it was very spare. There wasn't a lot of content. There wasn't a lot of clutter. There was obviously no rich media. There were no pop-up browsers. There were no, you know, anything. There was a, a sort of a, a patchwork quilt of content from uh, Time Inc. and then our own original content that some of the producers slash writers like Craig. Uh, at Pathfinder were creating. Things like uh, Netly News and things like that? Netly News, absolutely. Josh Quitner. And and that was an early... I mean, that was was the first TechCrunch, I think, or insert name here. It was the first Recode. Um, It was Josh who had, you know, absolutely was a natural at this to just, you know, write the Netly News. It was, we had a, during the time of the, and I, I would be surprised if Craig did not mention this because it's just one of those things. We had a, it was the time of the OJ trial, mm-hmm. and we had a, a site called OJ Central, mm-hmm. which followed the trial. So it was, it was a lot of things like that, but I, I go back to this, it was, I always felt that we were on strategy because we it all fell under the ages of Walter's dictum of let a thousand flowers bloom. Try a lot of different things. Try, 
try a lot of different things and let's see what works. And it was during that time that I was busy selling ads and Walter and Paul Sagan, who was his lieutenant and later his successor, uh, were taking meetings with Bill Joy and Tim Polisi Police, and, and Jane and Lewis and, I mean, everybody, um, Steve, Steve Case, every, everybody who was there, we had a, you know, it was such a small community that you could sit down and sort of share information in a really informal way. Were, were so, you guys, were, were you doing experiments with building community, like with, you had message boards and things like that, was, was it more of a focus on the content or were there also experiments in community building sort of like what AOL was at the time? There were experiments in community building. I would not say that they were extremely successful, but largely because it was all, we were, although timing opinion may have been contrary, we, we were quite underfunded for the scope of our ambition. So, so things, a lot of things were, that were tried were, I think, I feel, and this is simply my opinion, that they were, they, they died before they got out of the chute because they were, we underinvested in them and created a product that was adequate but not great, or to use the word of the day, disruptive. Um, but yes, we did try, we did work on that. Um, later on, we worked very hard on personalization. We were obsessed with trying to find a way to get people to pay for content. Uh, one of the big, big discussions that was just endemic throughout the organization was, where should the firewall be? And okay, you pay to go into the house, but the front porch is free. And, you know, all of these sort of very early ways of describing the variant paid content models that you, that you see on the web today and yesterday and, and all that. Was, so. was, a, was a paywall ever actually launched? Because I know it was intended and then it was delayed and then delayed. Did it ever actually go up at any point? No. So, but it it is, you know, as I pointed out in my piece, you know, it was wildly successful at a time when it's, it's still the Wild West out there. I, you know, Pathfinder is launching exactly concurrently when, when Yahoo's launching, it's like you mentioned and things like that. And, you know, it, it was, it, it was a top 10 web property for, for years deep into the 90s. Oh, yes. It was the top 10 most viewed and it was also in the top 10 in revenue and that was ad revenue because as, as I've talked about before we were a safe way for national advertisers to come on the web although at, at the same time we were also looking to create a local advertising base so we were looking at you know, trying to create web yellow pages and listings and classified ads. All of those things were on our our whiteboard of projects to work on. Personalization, syndication of content, 
which we, you know, carried with us from the first AOL deal. Um, local, community, all of it. Um, we were we were indeed trying to grow a thousand flowers. Can we get into some of some of the corporate politics involved in this? You know, the the scope of the site and the strategy for the site seems to change, you know, with different regimes, executives coming and going over this project. Um, but also, you know, was, was there pushback from individual properties? Like, I think I read that, you know, people at People Magazine at one point wanted to go off and do its own website. Did, was there, were there struggles within uh, the various content pieces um, uh, putting this stuff online and, and coming under the Pathfinder umbrella? It was like the beginnings of World War One when that that guy was shot in his hunting lodge, Mayor Lane, and for a little while the world couldn't figure out who was at war with who because everybody was at war with everybody else, and sometimes concurrently with being at war with themselves. It was just that complicated. So the short answer to your question is absolutely yes. As it became clear that this was not going to go away and would become a more um, a more per, a permanent way of distributing content and selling ads. Um, every it was a jump ball. So by that time, I believe that I had been I I had been promoted to vice president of sales and marketing, revenue. I was essentially the CRO, right? So one of the things that I was doing was trying to generate revenue in other ways besides advertising. And I had replaced myself as I, I had a new ad director. And um, so I was meeting with all of the magazines. And they were very um, schizophrenic, I think, in their in the, their way of thinking about it, yeah, they wanted their own website because, of course, the underlying issue there, and it was the right issue, in my view, was, wait a minute, we're People Magazine. We're world famous. Everybody knows who, we're Sports Illustrated. Mm -hmm. We are the gold standard of sports information magazine, weekly magazines. We should not be burying our brand behind something called Pathfinder. So that was the that was the white noise or you know drumbeat under a lot of this stuff. And the way it played out was we wanted um, we, people wanted their own sites, but they didn't want to do any of the work. They didn't want to invest any of the money because they. You know, you, you would sort of ballpark, well, here's here's how much servers cost and routers and um, a content management system. Well, why can't we use our desktop publishing system? Well, you can't. Why not? Because you're not publishing printed pages and signatures and forms. You're publishing digitally and you're publishing packets of zeros and ones. Um, that go through wires and, you know, I would invariably lose them at that point, but again, another story. So they wanted their own site. 
they wanted to control Pathfinder. They wanted to kill Pathfinder. They wanted to, by this time, you know, we're moving forward in history. They're wanting to sell other competitors or, you know, not competitors, who knew at that point, were coming to, to them, to People Magazine, as AOL came to Time several years earlier, saying, we'd like to pay you for your content and publish it on our website. And, and all of these things were happening all at the same time. It was just, um, you know, you, you kind of, it kind of made your head spin because in one meeting, the publisher, any given publisher of any given magazine would say, uh, I want to have my own site. I want to sell my own ads. Or more commonly, I need to give away ads as value added because the pressure on magazine advertising is growing. So there was a, a lot of, you know, one of the, one of the issues that every legacy print entity that moved online, and this includes my, our, my then brethren, CNN and Warner Brothers, is all of the people who were not online, the online employees or the online players, wanted to give the advertising away for free to help increase their traditional advertising, being it, be it broadcast or print. So they would say that. Then they would say, I want to own Pathfinder. And then they would say, I want to sell path. I want to sell my magazine content to Yahoo or someone else. Um, and they would say it, they would want all of these conflicting things all at once to happen. And it was just sort of interesting conversations to help sort out and help them understand what the state of play was, what, why selling, giving away the advertising was a long-term really bad idea, why it would be better not for them not to help grow future competitor, competitive websites, and why if they were going to start their own website, here's the ballpark of the costs that they would incur because we could do a quick back of the envelope, you know, pro rata of what we were spending on all of the, all of the different magazines to put them online. And, and then, um, and then say, here's, you know, here's what it'll cost you. And so it was really uh, recursive, circular, repetitive, and ultimately I think, unproductive at that period. Later, of course, it was productive, but in the beginning it was it was really a journey of discovery for a very talented group of people who woke up one day and found their world changed. Mm -hmm. Was were the larger at this point Time Warner uh suits minds ever really uh it seems like they were ambivalent the whole way. I mean, like Don Logan that has that famous quote that that Pathfinder is a black hole. It, was it, it? It just feels to me like they didn't have the stomach to do the sort of real investments that would be required for this sort of a 
of a of a new project you know yahoo has the 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 luxury of being able to go public and you know raise a hundred million dollars from softbank but it seems like it was sort of you're always battling against the the p l you're a division that's never returning enough you know revenue to justify its existence that sort of thing yeah that's absolutely right yeah um, i don't know if there's actually a question in there i'm just leading you to i'm speculating about this so go ahead there's certainly a comment in there, and, and I'm, I'll start with a spirited defense of Don Logan, one of the finest executives and finest people I've ever had the privilege of working for, alongside Norm Perlstein, who you know, eventually became my dual bosses. Don, what Don said was absolutely correct, and it wasn't, it wasn't pejorative. He was saying, as he would, he explained to me on several occasions in terms, various terms of regret and um, things like that, that he was simply, with his mathematician's mind and his, his, you know, gifts of analytics and understanding how business runs, that it was an unknown how much we'd have to spend, that that the black hole analogy was sort of you go into a black hole and you don't know where how, how large it is and where you're going to come out on the other side if you're Dr. Ho. And so that when he said it was a black hole, he was saying, this is a huge unknown. We can't quantify what our investment is going to be. I can't, because he was speaking at an analyst meeting, he you know, the analysts wanted to know, you know, when will this turn? Well, he knew because he's way smarter than the average bear, as Don, as Norm knew, that this thing was such a volatile, rapidly changing in, uh, sector, from the technology to the to the business models to the reception of advertising to the other revenue sources that may be possible, like selling subscriptions to people online, all that stuff, that you could not predict how much you'd have to spend before it became a, a quote-unquote real business. And he used, he used the analogy of a black hole as, as, to describe that. So, so that was one thing. The second thing is that, yes, other than, I would say, in, in my, again, we're moving forward a little, um, Paul is now the president, and I am sort of his CRO, and we are, we are weary, you know, but we, we are weary, but absolutely still committed in fighting this multi-front battle, fighting, you know, engaging with our company, internally engaging with outside competitors and then a third variable which rapidly you know came into fruition was that CNN and Warner Brothers and all of the other component pieces of Time Warner started their own web uh, efforts and there was inter competition on that level as well Richie Glassberg a great, another terrific guy and one of my, a great friend of mine, 
now COO of MediaLets, was the ad sales guy for CNN and Turner. And he, you know, we found ourselves going head to head on on big pieces of business. Um, and so there was there was all of this kind of competition. But to answer your question or non-question, <laughs> um, the, the financial people, Time, Time Warner, Time Inc. had been such a terrifically uh, fertile piece of, uh, pro- of corporate property that created so much, generated so much cash and added so much to the corporate bottom line that they were really reluctant to invest in something that, back to Don's comment, didn't have a beginning, a middle, or an end. Compare and contrast that with around the same period. And I'm not, I can't say scientifically, and I'm sure your listeners will, you know, let me know about all of my inaccuracies, but around the same time, we had started and were, you know, maybe in the process of, of separating from um, another Un, you know, unknown character, Martha Stewart, right? Mm-hmm. So, so when you start a magazine, we had it down to a science. We knew how much it was, the startup costs were going to be, which were enormous. Um, when, you know, if you, you knew all the levers of revenue, which were advertising, subscription, newsstand, and other, list rental, you know, a bucket of other sort of small things, but those are the big three. And you would do the math, you had lots of history to go back and say, historically, a lifestyle magazine, if we spend this much money, we'll get this much return. It was really, you know, we, we were leaders in understanding, doing the demographic research and saying the audience for this kind of magazine is... 50 to okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs. Now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So it was a period of time where, yes, past time-making media was chronically underfunded because the corporate 
on a corporate level, Time Inc. was such a fertile generator of cash to the corporate bottom line that that they wanted us to keep our eyes focused although they were intrigued and curious about the brave so new this world is of, the section where online. we lost our connection and had Time to Inc. start over to not lose my apologies again to deliver profit and revenue to Time Warner and internally at Time Inc the CFO and the, the people in in business analysis and strategic planning would make the 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 safe bet was on a brand extension of which at that time there were many like Time Espanol and SI for Kids Martha Stewart Living you know which was not a brand extension but a, a, a magazine of a whole different flavor but they were investments that we had a long history of making investments in magazines where you could really know the cost, understand the, the, the process and the lever, the revenue levers you had to push and pull. We had the demographic research uh, and lots of it. And what was missing, sad, you know, in, in retrospect, of course, was the ability to say, okay, this is all right and good and passes the statistical modeling test, but what if, there are, what if people don't read magazines in the future? You know, that was the missing, that was the missing variable. But in, at that time, it was a much safer investment to invest in new magazines than it was in this really still sort of unknown. We had absolutely moved beyond Let a Thousand Flowers Bloom to... We are a business, and we are going to be, become profitable. Um, and that was, uh, I believe, that occurred with under Paul's regime, um, which was also short-lived. Um, by this time, Walter had gone back to Time Magazine, and Paul Sagan was promoted to the president, to being president of Time Making Media. So, um, Brian, there were conflicts and battles on every side and I very often envied the pure plays like Yahoo because and and all of the others that were coming online every single day um, because they didn't have they didn't have the burden of our greatest asset which was unparalleled content unparalleled reporters and human capital that could be brought to deliver great, huge, wonderful, curated, fact-checked information to the web. But that was also our greatest liability because they wanted, you know, the, the company as a whole really wanted all of that great stuff to go not into an online, be applied to an online channel, but rather the print channel that had served so well for 80 years or 75 years or however many years timing Henry since Henry Luce and Britain hadn't founded the company. Mm -hmm. Well, you eventually uh, take over um, the the new media division, correct? In like uh, later in the 90s, right? Nine, early 97. Yeah. So um, and so that's you're you're in charge for the whole dot com era madness. How how does how does the whole initiative evolve into that era? Well, um, fast and furious. 
I became president. Paul resigned, and I was asked to become president, um, which and and work duly for Norm and Don, and I was given um, an amazing an amazing gift and one of the best writers and editors of our age, Jan O'Grant, as my editor, editorial partner in crime, as um, I called him. And I was tasked, basically, if you, if you really want to be reductionist about it, if the age of Isaacson was about letting a thousand flowers bloom and, you know, this sort of um, incubator kind of experimentation, and the age of Sagan was we're a business. Let's stick on. Let's stick to the things that we know we can make money from. The age of McCutcheon was. Let's let's show everybody that we can be profitable, and let's turn this around. And hopefully that the Don Logan comment will, you know, cease to become the first thing people think about Pathfinder. So when I became president. Um, the first thing I did was, one of the first things that I did was, well, the first thing that I did was create a business model that um, articulated five areas of potential revenue, including syndication, personalization, uh, paid content, advertising, and right now the fifth escapes me, but I'm, again, I'm sure I'll think of it at two in the morning. Com- commerce, possibly. Commerce, yeah. e-commerce. Thank you, Brian. Yeah, mm-hmm. e-commerce. Um, again, in its very nascent stages. And so that's the first thing I did. The second thing I did was to kill the name Pathfinder and instead bring forward the robust sites of time, time.com, si.com, people.com, instyle.com, all of, all of the sites. So I went from managing a monolithic, um, yet, you know, monolithic on the front, but sort of, um, you know, a Borgia-type uh, infighting, interesting warfare underneath to um, an equal, not exactly equal, because obviously some sites did had way more traffic and advertising interest than others, but a... Um, a portfolio of individual sites that were brand centric. And because it was as part of the dot com mania that you described a moment ago or you mentioned a moment ago, I I was able to uh, truthfully point out to people who said anyone can be a publisher on the web and I would say, Yeah, duh, but Really? Would you want to read that stuff? You want to go to the bank? If you're, if you have money.com, which you know Tyler Matheson is contributing to, and Frank Lolly, and all of these well-known uh, writers and people who have deep subject matter in, in finance, personal finance, and then you have something called GetRichNow.com, which could be a, you know, 14-year-old in his mom's basement, which. Where are you going to go to find information about how to manage your finances? Alternatively, on the news front, um, and I'm I, Matt, Matt Drudge was my go-to analogy, and I would say, look, when uh, it was during Princess Diana, 
had mm. just died in mm. that horrific uh, car crash. And I went to Ann Moore, the, then the publisher of the people, and I begged her, um, pretty much, to let me publish and, and create an uh, like a pop-up site, just all things Princess Diana, the mm-hmm. investigation, the crash, everything. Like we had done years earlier with OJ on a much more primitive level. And she, being brilliant and um, everything, agreed, but you know, basically told me that if this, that she expected that the Princess Diana issue, which was because of the Princess Diana died on Labor Day, so she died over a weekend, in a U.S. weekend, and the next issue of People was already at the printers. Mm-hmm. So they were seven days behind the news cycle. They would not have an issue out until the following Friday, I think. Um, so they were going to be four or five days behind the story. And so I said, she was afraid that if I were publishing all these things online, that no one would bother to read the magazine. And so that was sort of our bet. She said, okay, Linola, you do this, but if my newsstand stand sales go down, you know, basically, I know where you live. Mm-hmm. So we did this, and um, it was an apocryphal moment because we, we had, within hours, we had a, a virtual newsroom set up. We were on the people floor and on our floor working, putting all the resources of timing, reported, reporting infrastructure, its contacts, everything to bear, producing what I would say was absolutely the finest digital news source for this news incident. Um, and and it got incredible viewership. I mean, it really was, was hugely popular. People came out on their publishing schedule, of course, full issue dedicated to the Princess Diana story cover amazing, you know, typical, amazing people magazine work. Largest newsstand seller in the history of People magazine. So it was a proof point that at that point, 97, I think we're now in, um, that in 1997 at least, people would go online to get news and information, but they still bought the magazine. They still wanted the the great resolution pictures and the, all that other stuff. You know, there it was sort of a dichotomy of what you could get on online that you couldn't get in print. And then there, at that point, the technology was not at a place. It was at a place where there were some things that print could deliver you couldn't get online. So you know, great game on. In terms of the news, I often you know, I, as I said, Matt Drudge is my go-to analogy, and I would talk about the need for curation and fact-checking and, and really getting stories right. And I would say there was a news event that occurred, and within two hours, time.com um, had headlines, had stringers on it, all of this stuff. It was a big story, and I'm, and I'm blanking on what it was, but it was a big news story. Um, I think it was a domestic news story, which gets better viewership than, or more, tends to get more interest, at least in those days, than in international. It was all of that. 
he went to Drudge, the Drudge Report, which was, you know, the news on the web, and it was, there was just a line on the homepage that said Matt Drudge is on, in the field or on vacation, mm-hmm. he'll be back in two weeks. And, I mean, you could do that in those days. People did. So, but it was a great way of pointing out that if you want to do journalism on, on the web, it costs money. You have to have, you know, resources and you have to have real news and you have to have curation. It's, you know, something that I I think is still relevant today as an issue. Um, but it was it really helped turn the turn the tide for internally for Time Inc. and externally for people who were advertising and paying us money for other services that we provided in our five buckets of um, revenue, um, that 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 was right. There were those there was, there was a Princess Diana on the sort of lifestyle human interest scale, and then there was this other news event that was was um, just showed that if you bring to bear the resources of the great journalistic enterprise, as Norm used to call it, um, you you would win because readers would know and they would want the real deal. They would want news that they could trust. So um, so that was that was a real turning point for us. And and that was when Ann Moore because we had a revenue share deal or some internal accounting mechanism, she was able to show that her the efforts we made online generated X amount of revenue for the entity the the entity known as people, while at the same time the the cash engine of People magazine generated all this revenue from the same news story. Again, it's a win win. And and that was great. And when you could show that Time.com could break news stories and capture the viewers, you know, uh, consumers' consumers' interest with it, at the same time the magazine was still producing, would provide analysis, insight, opinion, you know, not sort of real-time journalism as it was in, in 1997, but rather. Um, more dimensionalized reportage, and that was a win too. Mm-hmm. So I would say that 1997, not because I, it was the year I became president and led the organization, but just because of this confluence of events and um, opportunity, that it was the time that we really turned the corner from being thought as a um, a, a grand experiment to a potential business, and it certainly didn't hurt that by that time we were in the middle of, you know, I I was meeting, Dan and I would meet with Jeff Bezos and, and you know, all these other people that mm-hmm. were, were kind of coming in and, and raising the bar ever so higher for new web startups. Um, so that was the turning point. So th- this is the era when it no, uh, where, where digital becomes more integral to everything that that all these properties are doing. I'm sorry, Brian. Repeat that again. Uh, that this is this is the this is the era uh, late the late '90s when y- you're 
all of Time Warner is starting to make digital more integral to everything they're doing as opposed to just being this experiment off to the side. Yes, yes. And everybody in Time Warner who was attached to digital and who had been early enthusiasts, like Jim Malashok, um Richie, um, me, Oakland was a little bit different, but he certainly got it. We went from being thought of those, you know, crazy people who left really good jobs in their traditional media to go do this doomed, you know, quixotic experiment to being precious about the nature of online and what it would become. And so by that time, um, we, Time Inc., of course, Pathfinder, or the late great Pathfinder as it was then, mm-hmm. um, were in, we were in constant contact with our colleagues at Warner Brothers and CNN, and we had this informal caressu. We'd all go out to dinner, and someone would say, oh, I hear Mosaic is going to come out with a new browser that has channels. So all right, so I'd say, well, the news channel obviously should be led by Time, and Richie would say, no, Linda, obviously the news channel should be led by CNN, and the entertainment channel, okay, we could all sort of agree that that belonged to Warner Brothers, but, you know, we we informally, and without any, you know, sort of our own uh, set of of uh, directives and regulations or whatever in just an informal we're all trying to do the same thing way we're communicating and um, and working together in a way that that helped us look better in the marketplace because the last thing of course you want to do is say okay uh, Turner you you're in today pitching for uh, $3 million pr- a proposal, and yesterday Time Making Media was in pitching a $3 million proposal that would include Time People in style and FI. So what's the deal? I thought you were the same company. So we tried to avoid those conflicts. And we were I think we were largely successful in that, although there you know, were always going to be some missteps. So you... Did you leave Time Warner before the AOL merger? Yes. Um, so, you know, sort of as my my summation question for for this whole this whole era is, um, you know, time. I, I, I'm trying to sort of go back and and give credit to to pioneers that you know have been sort of lost down the memory hole and and, and things like Mm. Pathfinder, even though it's thought of as this expensive failure, you know, it was, it was a pioneer and things like that, but Time Warner or Time Inc. at least, you know, had been experimenting with digital for a long time, going back to the uh, full service network, you know, Pathfinder, the, all the new media stuff that you were involved with. Why, Mm -hmm. why of all the media companies, why was time, what was it different about Time Warner that, that they, Time was there at the very beginning, uh, alongside, like you said, Yahoo and Wired. Of of all the media conglomerates, companies, brands, why was it Time that that was a pioneer in this sort of stuff? Um, Walter, 
Terry Levin. It's the it's... Kurt. The, it was it me, and, it, and at that point in a much smaller fashion. Although, since I was the, the money person, I guess I guess I did. I, I was an important proof point, but it really was a collection of very pe- people who were, whose eyes were fixed on the long horizon. Walter, one of his other quotable quotes, and as you know, Walter is is very much a quotable quote, was, if Henry Luce were alive today, he'd be building a website. And it was something that played really well internally because it reminded us, and we were all very proud of the heritage of Henry Luce and his, you know, creation of the weekly news magazine and all this stuff, but that that just summed it up. And it was true. I believe it was true. I, you know, in the biographies, the biographies I read of Luce, it certainly sounds like it, it is plausible. But no matter, there were, there were just a group of people who profoundly believed this and were able to kept we kept eking out victories and eking out um, enough credibility that that we were we kept getting enough funding, just just enough funding, I might add, um, to keep going and keep improving and keep doing that. Craig was part of that in the very early days. And then, um, you know, I, I played a part and, you know, all sorts of people played a part, but it was really people who just understood it. And Dan Oakrant, who would stand in front of his editorial peers saying, you know, this is the future, guys. I'm an editor. I, you know, this is what I do. I write. But pretty soon, I, will, I write and I edit. And pretty soon, I'll be doing it online. And I think um, maybe a little more than the rest, it, it might have been Norm, who was, Norm Perlstein, who was a really early believer in this stuff and really, really quietly in his way clearing out some of the big trees and the big barriers for us to do our stuff and our stuff we did. Um, in, in terms of Jerry, who I don't know nearly as well as I know Norm and, and many of the other people I've mentioned, Jerry had tried with video on demand and the full service network at that scary place down in Florida. Mm-hmm. And, um, all of a sudden, you know, he, again, sort of woke up one morning and discovered that while he was spending million, you know, bill, however, lots of dollars on a quote-unquote broadband strategy, his employees down in the divisions, me at Time Inc., people at Warner, Malishak at, at Warner Brothers and, and Richie and his crew at Turner, um, had been relatively quietly, or at least on Jerry's radar, creating a narrow band strategy. And that's, you know, because we were still on you know, dial up and it was DSL and it was, we were all, we were all worried about the thickness of the pipe. Mm-hmm. But I think that's why. I think it was just the sheer, it was me sitting at home in the summer of 1994 saying, this is, this is 
profound. This is a seminal shift in how information and entertainment will be distrib- distributed. And and I saw it. I I had always seen my career. I was I used to say I'm not smart enough to be an editor, but I like to hang out with them as enabling and facilitating through the creation of revenue, great journalism, great, you know, whether, whether it was nonfiction or whether had I worked for Esquire, I would be really proud of the fact that we were the, one of the first people who had published David Foster Wallace. That's just, that's me. That's why I was in it. And when I, the, it just became clear to me in 1994 that this was going to be how people got their information. There was no turning back. You know, there was no turning back. And um, I do. Th- I think that's why Time Inc. was in it early. And and I would hope that in in the future, in the perspective of the future, people begin to think of Pathfinder not as a colossal failure, but as an experiment that that forwarded the ball for everybody else because there's there's really something to be said of the the first mover who makes all the mistakes so you don't have to right and that's what we did and and there were a lot of things that we did that weren't mistakes and during the period of 1997 to 1999 we did become profitable. We turned a profit. And pretty much at that juncture, I knew that I could leave and go on to other things, having accomplished what I thought was, um, you know, that part of the journey for Time Warner's or Time Inc.'s digital strategy, which is how I always thought about it. You know, not printed letters on a printed page, but zeros and ones going through a wire. And now, not through a wire. So, <laughs> well, that is that is a hundred percent why why I I'm focusing on on Pathfinder in this chapter. So, uh, thank you very much for um, remembering all that. That that summer of '94 and your maternity leave is exactly twenty years right now. Have- and how do I know this? Because my son Andrew is 20 years old, <laughs> and and he has grown up using technology like, you know, I used to use whatever, you mm-hmm. know, Play-Doh. Mm-hmm. So it's at a certain point, I think, for everyone who does this kind of stuff, there is an element of personal in it. And I would look at my children and think, what kind of, you know, how are they going to learn and know and get information and it was just clear to me that that you know that this was they were going to become adults in a different world than the one in which I became an adult which is of course true of every generation but in this regard in terms of the analog to digital movement so I'm proud of what we did at Time Inc and I'm really proud to have worked beside the people that I did who I who now occupy or occupied some of, uh, you know, went on to amazing things. Uh, Kurt and and Paul Sagan, of course, ran Akamai up until last year. I mean, we spawned, we were the, the AAA team for 
Major League Baseball, starting in, say, in the year 2000. Well, Linda, thank you for coming on the podcast, and, and thanks again for remembering all this for us. Okay, you're welcome, Brian. I enjoyed it. If you're enjoying this podcast, there's one simple thing that you can do to help us out. If you do nothing else, just go to iTunes and rate us. One to five stars takes about two seconds. Or give us a review because the weird way that iTunes works is it's not just the number of downloads, it's also the number of ratings and reviews. As always, you can join the conversation at www.internethistorypodcast.com. Get more info, see pictures, and see my full bibliography for each episode. The show's Twitter is at NetHistoryPod, and my personal Twitter is at BrianMCC. Thanks for listening. <laughs>